chapter 5, and then just part of 6. We're not going to read all of 6. Afterward, and this is just after, give it, I'll give you guys some context for those who haven't been here. God just met in the burning, burning bush, little burning bush, uh, met Moses, and had given him this mission to go to Pharaoh to free God's people. He's met with all the people of Israel. He's told them about that, and straight from that, we get this passage. So, again, starting at chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of he- the Hebrews has met us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks you, that they have made in the past, you shall impose on them. They shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get yourselves straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. And so the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather for stubble for straw. And the taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day as when there was straw. And the foremen, the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, and yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, and the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must deliver still the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them. And as they came out from Pharaoh, they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. 
And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from the, under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Join me in to pray for teaching of God's word. Father, uh, this is a, a long passage and is a reminder that you are not a God who is silent, um, that just as you met Moses and, and spoke to him, you are meeting us tonight and speaking through your word. And we pray you would uh, work powerfully through that, that you might even break through hearts that are hard, um, that you might soften them, that you might open up eyes and ears that are closed Uh, And that ultimately you might help us see more of your beauty, um, of the beauty of what you've done for us in Christ, of the beauty of the work that you are doing in us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. What's the last big experience that you've had of just something going completely wrong? And what, what was your response to that? One, one of the things, this isn't the last thing, I've had plenty of things go wrong, um, but one of the things that I, I think about that's pretty memorable happened back when I was in college. I was in this class on uh, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. I didn't get to go to Cambridge like some people did, but we still got to read a lot of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. And I'd already read a ton of C.S. Lewis, so I was like, this class is just going to be super easy. It's just going to be fun. It's going to be great. And, you know, I was about a third away into the semester. And then we had our first assignment. It was kind of like an exam. It was a paper that was an exam. And it was about a third of the grade. And I ended up writing this paper on Tolkien and, like, the, the theme of free will in his writings and I'm, you know, I'm thinking this is pretty good. Like, I, you know, maybe I won't get an A on this. Maybe I'll get an A minus. But I was, I was pretty confident about it. And the next day, get the paper back, and I'm in complete shock. I got an F. I totally failed the paper. <laughs> I know, it's so shocking. Um, 
Why? Uh, you know, I, this was pretty hard on me. You know, I, I was a little bit like you guys. Like a B, a B plus was was a, a pretty significant disappointment for me in college. So an F was just totally unimaginable. Um, and I'm like, I'm like, is this even my paper? But I'm looking through it and red ink all over it. And I'm like, yep, this is, this is definitely my paper. And the reason I, I, I failed it uh, was I didn't do proper MLA citation because uh, I thought it was an I thought it was an exam. So I was like, oh, I could just say Lord of the Rings page whatever. I don't have to do all the you know correct stuff about it. Um, and but my response to that was not to accept it, was not to learn from it, was not to face it head on, but was to, I ran to this other English professor that I had a really good relationship with that was kind of more lax, and I was like, like, we got to do something about this. This is so unfair. Like, can you please, like, step in and intervene? I had, like, this very, like, fight response to it. But I know other times in my life I've had another response, maybe, that you've, you guys have had of flight. Um, you know, I've had... I've done, I can remember many times trying to get things going at, at the RUF in Pennsylvania and I have an event and be like, oh, you know, maybe we'll have 60 or 80 people show up to this and then like 15 people showed up to it. Uh, and then I have other, you know, moments where I interviewed for jobs, they didn't pan out. And, and in those moments, I just wanted to go hide in my room and watch Netflix the rest of the day. I just wanted to escape from the world. I think it's really challenging for us to just stare failure and rejection and difficulty like in the face and recognize it. And, and, the, and it, the last thing we want to do is accept that it is actually a normal part of life. Um, but how we wrestle with this is really important. It's actually one of the most common questions that I have a counselor that I meet with about once a month that he'll ask me, or at least it's stuck in my head, is what is your relationship to failure. And I think that is what the Lord is asking us tonight with this passage. What, what is your relationship to failure, to rejection, to suffering, to where, when things are falling apart? And he's wanting to reorient what our response is to it. And, and we see really two things that he's wanting uh, to show us in this passage. One, the frustration that comes from false expectations, and two, the hope that can be found and his promises. So first, uh, let's think about the frustration of false expectations. It really is almost kind of funny how quickly things fall apart in this passage. You got, like, I imagine Moses and Aaron, like, they are so pumped up. They just, like, the burning bush thing happened. They talked to the people of Israel. They're, like, walking into Pharaoh's court, like, in slow motion with, like, we are the champions playing, and they're just like, we are going to do this. We're going to free God's people. Boom. They go in, say, let my people go. And then the music stops, and Pharaoh responds, who's the Lord? Like, I don't know. I don't have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, I'm not going to let Israel go. And then they, like, backpedal, and they're like, well, they try to give, like, more reasons for it. And they're like, well, we're only going to go for three days. It's not that long of a time. But Pharaoh's just getting more annoyed. And so as we saw in this passage, he decides to make things even worse for the people of God. And, and that happens. And eventually the people of Israel, they are angry at Moses and Aaron for even having this conversation in the first place. And then we finally land at the end of chapter 5 with the Lord telling, turning to the Lord and saying, why'd you do this? 
Why, why did you send me in the first place? Like, all that's happened from this is bad. You have not done anything remotely to deliver your people. What are you doing? Have you ever felt that way? Have you felt like, I am doing everything God is telling me to do. I'm, I'm going to church. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. I'm trying to love these really hard people in my life. And I'm trying not to live this totally self-centered life. And yet I keep hitting failure and rejection and suffering and just all these difficult things. Maybe you're trying to trust God's will for your life uh, when you really desire to be in a relationship romantically. Or maybe you are just really looking for deeper community and friendship. And yet you keep finding yourself alone on the weekends wrestling with loneliness, feeling like you're locked out of these inner rings on campus where all these people are having fun without you. Maybe, you know, you try to, you're trying to trust the Lord with your classes and you're trying to be faithful, which is really good to, to actually put in the time to study and you're, you're in Millican just for hours and hours into midnight. I don't, know how, I don't even know how late that place is open. Um, and you still do terrible. What, how late? It's 24 hours. 24 hours? We can get it with student IDs. Okay, man. Then you put in the full 24 hours before your test. <laughs> and then you still do badly. Uh, maybe, maybe you're like, you know, for those of you here that are involved with RUF, like you're, you're trying, you're, you care about RUF and you're like trying to invite people to RUF and you're trying to do all the right things you think you need to do as a, as a leader in RUF and you just don't feel like anything's happening and you want to talk to the Lord. What, what is going on? You have not done anything at all. It's, it's interesting how surprised we are when this happens. Um, maybe it's because we actually do believe God's going to do something. We have expectations, which is good, but I think we're looking, we have like this microwave version of God's promises that we're expecting. We're like, pop it in the microwave, 30 seconds. Okay, boom. I got it. Like it's there. And yet just like Israelites and, and Moses, that doesn't happen. We're surprised. And we don't, it doesn't stay at surprise. It starts to turn to frustration at the Lord. I mean, it's interesting that the Lord kind of becomes the enemy by the end of this passage. The Israelites don't blame Pharaoh. He's the one doing this. They blame Moses, and then Moses blames God. I, I think we often do the same thing. We don't blame this broken, fallen world we're in. We don't blame our own deceitful hearts. We don't even recognize that there are evil spiritual forces in the world doing a lot of things. And we end up almost running back into the arms of the very things that we feel like are enslaving us when we're frustrated with with this God who doesn't seem like he's giving us what he told us he would give us. But are we right to be frustrated? Uh, Has the Lord just played this really mean, fun trick on Moses, just, you know, he just wants to mess with him. It's like, aha, I'm going to let you go get rejected by Pharaoh. Well, I think the way we find the answer out to that, um, if, 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 if the Lord actually warned Moses and the people of this, is by going back to chapter 3 and chapter 4. And if you look back at verse 19 of chapter 3, 
I'm just going to read it. You, you can flip there if you have your Bible. Uh, the Lord tells Moses, on top of all these other instructions, but no, the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And then again, in chapter 4, the Lord says to Moses, uh, there in verse 21, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. And we talked about that last week, you know, the snake, the leprosy thing, all of that. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people of God go. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your, first, my, your, uh, your firstborn son. Now, there's a lot of stuff there. Um, you know, I could spend time talking about Moses, like, didn't do half the things that God told him to do. Um, you know, the miracles, he was also, there's another part that talks about bringing the elders with him, and Moses and Aaron went by themselves. And that's a problem. We could spend time on that. Moses and Aaron are not blameless in the situation. But the bigger problem is they totally ignored that the Lord kept saying, like, neon light, this is going to be hard. This is not going to be easy. The, the Lord did not promise that they were going to come in there, slow motion, with we are the champions playing, and just immediately crush Pharaoh. He, he did promise he would deliver the people, but he didn't say it was going to be easy. And, and so Moses' frustration and the people's anger was really the result of a selective hearing that, that created these false expectations about how God's salvation actually works in our lives. I, I think we all have this hidden presupposition about what it means to be a Christian. I think even non-Christians often think this. If I obey God, he has to bless me. If I'm really thoughtful and prayerful and biblical and like I seek counsel and I do all the right things, then it should go well. Like I should be happy, I should be successful, I should be popular, I should be healthy. And so when we find ourselves doing all those things, obeying God, which is great, and then we don't experience blessing, we do the exact same thing the Israelites have done. Uh, we, we fail... We, we are selective. And I think the issue is we are selective in our hearing. You know, a familiar passage, maybe to some of you, some of you at the center of the gospel of Mark. You could say in some ways it's the main point of Mark. In addition to Jesus coming to die for our sins, it's the, it's the falling response to that. Jesus says to the disciples in Mark chapter 8, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life would save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And Peter, lovingly and bluntly, you know, he probably heard this. And then he's thinking this as he writes in 1 Peter 4. He's writing to the church, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And I could just go through so many passages all over the Bible that are saying this exact same 
thing. Like the Lord was not trying to slip one past us or play a cruel joke on us. The Christian life is this beautiful, fulfilling thing, but it is hard. And I think we actually make things harder on ourselves by buying into this false narrative that somehow becoming a Christian just makes everything easier. That if I become a Christian, I'm not going to struggle with depression anymore. That if I become a Christian, I'm going to stop caring what everyone thinks about me. It doesn't work in that quick microwave way. And I know a lot of you are, you're, you're thinking tonight, you're resisting this. I, I'm resisting this. No, I can do this. I can't. If I, just, if I just lock in the right things, I can make life easy. I can skip the cross or at least I can like carry it very gracefully. Like it almost is just weightless. If I just get the right friends and community, if I can get my right major and, and figure out my study schedule and everything, if, if I can just do all the activities, if I can do Greek life, if I can do sports, if I can be involved with the church, if I can be involved with RUF, if I can be involved with all these different things. And I think through this, so many of us, including myself, we're, we're, again, we're trying to avoid the pain and reality of life, of failure and rejection it's almost as if we're like, yeah, we will make bricks without straw. We can do it. We'll get all the straw. We'll, we'll, we're going to impress Pharaoh, and then he's going to love us, and he's finally going to give us a break. And that's not going to happen. And I, I promise you, if you continue in this path, you're going to find yourself blindsided one day. You're going to, and perhaps the biggest judgment God could have on your life is actually to say, okay, keep doing that. Keep trying to find all, all your fulfillment outside of me. One day, your spouse will say to you, I'm done with your workaholicism. I'm, I'm done with this. Or you'll discover your kids hate you. Or, or you'll just discover one day you feel empty. There's this scene in this documentary that's on Netflix. It's called Stuts. Has anyone heard about this? If you haven't, it's uh, Jonah Hill did it, and it's about him and his counselor. He's kind of like, he had such a good, pivotal experience with his counselor that he was like, man, I want to bring this like, to other people and let other people see sort of what it's like to have him do his counseling therapy work on me. Um, and at one point in it, they're talking about this thing called the snapshot that's kind of one of Stutt's kind of metaphors or tools. And it's really, it's this term that it's meant to refer to this perfect experience that doesn't exist that we're trying to actualize. And Hill confesses to Stutz at one point. He says, before I met you, I was this wildly insecure kid, and I thought that the success and rewards would absolve me of the pain of life. And so I worked hard to get that snapshot, and because of my privilege and luck, I got to go into that snapshot relatively early. And when it didn't cure any of the stuff that, that, that made it, it made me beyond depressed. When it, it didn't actually give me what I wanted, I was unimaginably sad. When, when God lets you fail, when he lets something just terrible happen mm-hmm. to you, maybe, maybe slow down and consider he might be trying to save you from something far worse. He might be trying to save you from the deeper loss of having attained everything you could ever have dreamed of wanting and still feeling totally empty. 
And that, that is a frustration that is far worse than the frustration of taking up our cross. Well, well for, you know, we've been picking on Moses a bit, but there is one thing that Moses did right. He brought his problems to the Lord. And we see here, moving on to our other point, that the Lord meets him that. He shows him mercy. He's not faced by this complaint. And he gives him, he points him to hope and his promises. And that, that's our second point, the hope of God's promises. Look, look back there at verse, at chapter 6, uh, especially what, what God says starting in verse 2. He says, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by the name of the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. And there really, there's a lot of this that's, re- that's repeated here. He's reinforcing things, but there's something new and beautiful here. He says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. God's not phased by their frustration. He's not concerned about the outcome of this. He, he knows he's going to deliver them. He's going to fulfill even promises that he made 400 years ago to Abraham. What like an amazing comfort that is. That whatever failure you feel yourself in the midst of right now, whatever difficulty, whatever future thing you will inevitably find yourself in, God is not thrown off course by that. He's not thrown off course by the end of your romantic relationship. He's not like, oh, man, you messed up because you got waitlisted for the the grad program that you wanted to get into. Rather, he is ready and has been planning for a long time to use those frustrating moments to redirect our hearts back to him and his promises. Well, it really stuck out to me from that paragraph is just all the eyes. It's almost as if the Lord is saying, Moses, stop thinking about yourself. Like, I am the Lord. Like, think about me and what I am doing in the world. And perhaps that is the most important thing we could go away from here tonight, reoriented to do, to be meditating on who God is and what he has promised to do. And if it takes suffering and rejection to actually break us, to the point where we hunger for that, I would argue it is worth it. It's not that God just wants us to suffer. He's not just like messing with us. It's because he wants something more than just comfort for us. He wants beauty. He wants eternal life. And so God let Moses and Aaron fall flat on their faces so that they might know better who he was. You know, if you think about it, what if, they ha- what if the Lord had been, okay, it, we are going to do this all in this one moment. You're going to go in there, boom, you deliver them in one fell swoop. What do you think their response would have been? What do you think the Israelites' response would have been? Those would have been the new ancient Near East celebrity pastors. Like, they would have been like, oh, Moses and Aaron, like you, like they soon would have become the gods. It would have become about them and not about the Lord. And that wouldn't have been good for Israel. And that wouldn't have been good for Moses and Aaron. 
Have you ever considered the reason God is letting these frustrating things into your life is that he is trying to bring you out of your obsession with yourself into the amazing life found in him? I mean, it's so, it's so enslaving to be obsessed with yourself. I know that from personal experience. We create so much obsession with, there's so much unhappiness with this obsession, living as if the world revolves around us, living as if everything is dependent on our success and strength. And there's so much freedom and joy and lightness in letting it revolve around him, recognizing he is the Lord. He is the one doing this. He's the one accomplishing his purposes. And if we give him back that life we owe, as we just sang, we find in the ocean depths of his love and what he is doing and redeeming his people and the world and restoring this world that our life will get richer and fuller. But it often takes something very hard. I heard a story recently. I'm kind of wrap up with this. Um, from a former campus minister about the student that was in his ministry. And this guy was like the guy, like, you know, if he was here, he'd be Mr. Wofford. Like he's an incredible athlete, just super well-rounded, great student. He was really involved with campus ministry. He led Bible studies. He was just, everybody liked him. But then one day he was diagnosed with cancer And as he went through chemo for that, he really lost everything. Obviously, he lost his health, but he lost friendships. And one night, he's in the hospital, and he's just trying to make it from his bed to the toilet. And he's so weak that he can't even make it there. He collapses on the floor. And as he's laying there on the floor, and he just can't do anything, he is totally helpless. That was the moment, he says, that he finally got grace. He finally realized God loved him just as much in that moment as he did when he was doing all those things, killing it on campus. And to this day, now he will say, I I thank God that I had cancer. That is insane. That is like crazy countercultural, such a, a crazy way to respond to suffering but I think it powerfully speaks to the gospel uh, because where do we see these threads of suffering and hope come together more beautifully than in Jesus Christ? I mean, it taught Christ's death on the cross, humanly speaking, was a failure, especially when you look at what he had before. He had all of these crowds and crowds of people if he was doing large group, you know, we, we'd have to be doing it over in, I don't know, the football stadium or something. He literally had people breaking through ceilings just to, like, have a minute with him. Like, he would have been, if he had Instagram, like, the, you know, influencer of influencers. And yet, at the end of his life, everyone's unfollowed him. He's being treated as the worst of criminals, hanging on a cross, rejection, failure at the highest level that you could lift it up to in that time. And yet it is in this apparent failure that the door to victory over sin and death, the door to defeating and bringing us out of slavery, defeating the devil, 
the Pharaoh, the ruler of this age, that is when it all happened, when the moment when Jesus was lying on the floor, helpless. And it was our very complaints, our restlessness, our discontent that sent him there. And yet he was willing to do that so that he could free us from this frustration of false expectations and enable us to experience the resurrection hope of the gospel that he accomplished. Let me close us in prayer.